0: We are in Genesis chapter 10. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10 this evening. go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word, to look at two different roads, two different paths, and, and where they lead. And so many times in life, it's easy to get onto the, the humanistic road of Babel, where we're trying to build our own name. And Lord, we want to live for you. We acknowledge your presence here with us, and that you, Jesus, are the bread of life. Would you come and meet our needs? Refresh our souls? We choose to rejoice in you because you're good. Even as we sing, we look forward to eternity. We look forward to seeing you face to face. And we express together as a body of believers that you're beautiful, you're wonderful, you're majestic. We just pray over this month and ask that you would use everything in our lives personally and also as a church family. We pray you would bless this ladies Christmas celebration, and that Christmas Eve services, and New Year's Eve, and may many people come to know you that don't know you. May you give us opportunities to, to share the love of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you into our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight in our study, we're going to see two roads. There's two genealogies, two different genealogical paths. One is of Japheth and Ham, and their lines diminish. Their lines go off of the pages of history. Then we're introduced to Shem's line, and Shem's line is going to lead us to Abram, who will become Abraham, which will lead to Jesus Christ. So there's those two lines that are uh, taking place. And then we also see the town of Babel, being erected, being built, leading to the tower of Babel. God ultimately brings confusion there. It's really a humanistic approach, a humanistic view, a humanistic endeavor apart from the Lord. And on the heels of that is Abram, who is beginning a relationship with God. So you have one rejecting God, and you have another that's beginning that relationship of faith. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the sons were born to them after the flood. So the flood is come and gone, Noah and his sons and their wives survive, and we see his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their descendants. And this is divided out in chapter 10 and 11. It's 14 descendants of Japheth, 30 from Ham, and 26 from Shem. So 70 descendants. This chapter has been called the table of nations. If you study it in detail you can look at how these descendants led to the different people groups of the world. So I think we've got a slide for you. You can't see it really good but it gives you a visual. Let's go ahead and pull that slide up if we can. But this shows you how their descendants mapped out through the world. So purple is Shem. So if you can see those purple dots those are how the people groups uh, work out. And then green is Japheth. So you see where green uh, takes more of a northern route. And then the descendants of Ham is the orange. And so those that are historians are able to look at this chapter of the Bible and see where all of the people groups uh, began from these three sons, which is pretty uh, fascinating. If you're into history and anthropology, this is the chapter uh, for you. So verse 2 the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madi, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkena, Riptha, and Tagarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarnish, Kittim, and Dodim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. Everyone, according to his language, according to their families, into their nation. So this is the descendants of Japheth, which lead to the coastal regions along Israel. That's primarily where these people groups uh, then developed into. And Japheth's genealogy is going to go off of the pages of history. We look at verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, and Canaan. Now this probably rings a bell from last week's uh, study, Canaan. Uh, we see was the son of Ham who received the curse because of Ham exposing his father's nakedness. The Canaanites are throughout the Old Testament and oftentimes plagued the nation of Israel. They were a perverse people given over to idolatry. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Shaptah, and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Here's one to note in verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. We see the word begot, and this is the first time that there's a begot in this, but there will be uh, many more. In the Hebrew, the word is ylad and it means to have a son, to have a child. Begot, ylad So here's Nimrod, and he's mighty on the earth. He stands out as being a mighty one. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. At the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar, which is modern-day Iraq. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ire, Kalan, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalan, that is the principal city. So you see all of these cities that he uh, developed. Mizram begot Lubdim, Abnim, Lehibim, and there's a bunch there more for you to wrestle with. (laughs) Verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. So this is significant with Nimrod that he would pioneer these two cities of Babylon, Babel, and also Nineveh, which would lead to the Assyrian Empire. Nimrod's name means to rebel (laughs) Uh, And it doesn't seem that he has a relationship uh, with the Lord. Now, verse 16, we're going to fast forward from verse 16 and go down to uh, verse 24. And as we get into verse uh, 16 and we go down to verse 24, there's a standout in this genealogy of the three sons. It says, Peleg, or excuse me, verse 25... Peleg, for his first days, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So in the days of Peleg, it says, for in his days, the earth was divided. Now, don't you wish you had more information about this? So one is saying and pointing to uh, that it was in his day that you have the event of Babel. Uh, But then others say that at one point the earth was one piece and was connected and then shifts and you have what we know uh, today. And so that's one theory in thinking that this uh, took place during the days of Peleg. We don't know for sure, but we do know that there was a dividing that took place uh, during his uh, days. So the genealogy continues, and we look at verse 31. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, and their lands, according to their nations. Now, has there been any question that's come in your mind yet as we've read chapter 10? We're seeing plural languages. But yet in chapter 11, we're seeing that it's one singular language and then God confuses and brings multiple languages. So, so most likely, we're then asked the question of timing. In chapter 10, we have probably have a lot of time that is documented. And then chapter 11 is the detail of how God spread these people groups throughout the world how do we have the table of nations how did they end up where they were well it's this event of babel is what caused them to scatter it's similar in the first few chapters of genesis where genesis chapter one god gives the broad view of creation and then chapters two and three he gives us the detailed uh, account and so i think chapter 11 is zooming in on how these nations got dispersed through the world These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations and their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So all nations can be brought back to these three sons, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. Now chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Sinar, and they dwelt there. So there's one language at this point. So this has to be prior to this table of nations that we led in chapter 10 and how they were dispersed. Imagine there only being one language. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be uh, convenient? Now, some of you are probably language people. Like language comes very easily for you. I'm not one of those people. I'm lucky if I can speak English, right? So I remember taking French in high school, because it was part of what you needed to prepare for college and and graduate, and I only remember tétois from French, which I think is shut your mouth, or be quiet, or then the other was fermé la bouche, and that was, I think, shut your mouth, so you could tell I was the problem child in the French class, but I mean, two years of French class, and that's that's what it got me. And the only reason I took French is not because I have a French last name, but Spanish was full, so you had to take French. I mean, that's an obvious choice. You'd take Spanish before you'd probably take French, right? So the languages are difficult, and here everyone had one language. Think of the potential that could take place with one language, what humanity could accomplish with one language language we're moving closer to being able to have one language primarily because of the internet it's getting easier and easier to communicate with people but still with even the advancements of of the internet it's still not quite the same I'm, you're having a conversation with sh- siri and she may not get the translation correct as you're going into another language so as they have one language they're journeying from the east and they find this this plane of Shinar, and they decide to dwell there. And this is uh, modern-day Iraq. Now, remember what God had encouraged and God had commanded both to, to Adam and Eve and Noah as well, is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's intent was, I want you to scatter. I want you to go out and fill this globe fill this planet with with life. But here they are camping out in one valley in the land of Shinar, and they decide to do this in verse 3. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, and let us build ourselves a city, a tower, whose top is in the heavens. So let us make a name for ourselves, lest we scatter abroad above the face of the whole earth. Now first, this is a building without God. We see the absence of God's name, which is significant. God's not on their hearts, God's not on their minds, and it's simply let us do this without consulting God. The humanistic view, the humanistic uh, approach Really tries to do life apart from God, doesn't it? There's a disbelief in God, there's a rejection with God, and we can do this without Him being involved. If you've been studying with us for a while, we spent time on Babylon in the book of Revelations and Babylon representing the world system apart from God, rejecting God. Well, where does Babylon get its roots? Right here at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 11. And as we think about the road that we're on, which road are we traveling? Are we starting to go down this humanistic view where we say we can gather together our resources, we can gather together our talents apart from a relationship with God, apart from having to depend upon God, and we'll do this, we'll, we'll, we'll build this, All right? Now what does the scripture tell us in the Psalms? It says if we build our home apart from the Lord, then we labor in vain. God is giving us an invitation that he wants to build our lives, but we have to be willing to allow him to do it. America's progression as we continue further and further into the future seems to be more in a humanistic view, more in a humanistic approach to say, let us build things apart from God. And then in verses three and four, we also see that this is a building for their own glory. Let's build a name for ourselves. Not, we want God to be glorified. They're going to build such a structure that it's going to go up into the heavens. The word Babel, it means the gate of God. So this is the idea, is is we can build this structure for ourselves to build our own reputation, our own glory instead of God's glory. And this is where we go apart from the Lord, isn't it? Is we want glory. We want to be recognized. We want people to see our accomplishments, our talents. We want to stand out. A lot of times when we step back and we look at all the things that are on social media, it's what I can build and how I can receive glory for it. Now, this is what I want to talk about is my accomplishments, what I'm, my, I'm into, And that's the idea of Babel, is they're building for their own glory. But God encourages us to live for his glory, doesn't he? To say, God, I want you to be glorified. If anything good comes in and through my life, I want people to see your goodness, your faithfulness, that you can work in and through a a sinner. But also here, it's a building against God. It says, lest we be scattered abroad above the face of the whole earth. They don't want to be scattered. They don't wanna be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth the way that the Lord has intended. So they're trying to do this without God for their own glory and against God. They're putting this in uh, God's, God's face. And our humanistic culture is more and more moving against God. As we examine and we evaluate our culture, what tolerance oftentimes means is everything is acceptable except the one true living God, that everything is tolerated except for the Bible, except for what God teaches about, about sexuality. Well, this isn't nothing new. Babylon and those that were building Babylon, they were saying, we're, we're against God. It's really the work of God in spiritual revival and people knowing Christ that transforms the hearts of men to be something different than what we see here with Babel. This should not be a surprise. This is the heart and the condition of men apart from Christ, amen? We're gonna gonna build on our own. We're gonna build for our glory and we're gonna build against God. We're gonna try to prove our independence in the, the face of God. Well, God decides to visit the building project. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built and the lord said indeed the people are are one and they have one language and this is what they begin to do now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them so god's looking at this and he's saying there's one they're one and there's power in their unity and because they're one and because they have one language they're going to be able to accomplish whatever they want to do now though there's power in unity and power in one language, it can't compare to being right with the Lord because notice what God does in verse seven. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Us referring to the Trinity, God having this conversation inside of the triune relationship says, let's just go down there and confuse their language. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all of the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all of the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad above the face of all of the earth. God gives them different languages. Can you imagine what this would have been like as they're building and building and building? And all of a sudden in a moment, Half of them have got one language. Another group's got this language. Another group's got that language. And they're trying to talk with one another. And it's babble, 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 babble. I understood you 15 minutes ago. And now I have no idea what you're saying. There is no Google translator. There's no Surrey to help with this, right? So what do they do? They very clearly then go with the people that speak their language and begin to inhabit the different places of the earth just as God's intended. So you may have power from a humanistic view. You may have unity from a worldly view. But if you don't have a relationship with God, you don't have anything, right? Because God, in a moment, can confuse the whole thing, God, if he wants to, can come and confuse the world system in a heartbeat. In the book of Revelation, when it's time for God to bring judgment, Babylon is no thing. God's able to cripple it in a moment, and he, he does that. So that's the importance of us to say, you know, here's what the world says I need to have going in my life, but the real thing that I need to be having going in my life is a relationship with the Lord. Because if I'm not with the Lord, then he can come and bring confusion in a moment in my life. And so you might be asking, well, how how am I with the Lord? And we're going to see that answered with Abram in just a moment. Because Abram, through faith, has right standing with the Lord, by trusting the Lord and the promises that the Lord gives. In verse 10, the focus on the genealogy of Shem. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Aphra-Axad two years after the flood. So that's pretty old to have your first kid, but he's going to live a long time. And his firstborn is born two years after the flood. After he begot Arafaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. If you read closely, the genealogy of Shem goes into a lot more detail than of Ham and Japheth because this is the genealogy that's going to continue, that's going to lead to the birth of Christ. So verse 12, Arafax had lived 35 years and he begot Selah. After he begot Selah, Arafax have lived 400 years and three years and he begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Uber. No, Eber, just <laughs> seeing if you guys were with me. And after he begot Eber, Saralah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. And you can continue to read through the genealogy of Shem, but let's fast forward to verse 24. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah, After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now, Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, if you remember, there's four major events that sum up the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You have the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And then the second half of the book of Genesis begins in chapter 12, and it focuses on four major people. The first of is Abram, who will become Abraham. So Terah, the descendant of Shem, has children, and one of his children is Abram. In verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, Haran begot Lot. So Abram's nephew is Lot. And Lot is going to play an important part in our story as we continue in the book of Genesis. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees. So Abram is living with his father in Ur of the Chaldees. Joshua 24 verse 2 tells us that Terah Was an idolater that he served many gods god calls abram out of idolatry into relationship with the one true living god history documents a lot through archaeologists of ur of the chaldees it was the western portion of the euphrates they worshipped many gods and they were very wealthy and advanced in ur of the chaldees they had a common district And the people of ancient Ur were highly advanced in culture. The common district was filled with marketplace, schools, libraries, and many of the people were very wealthy. They had nice homes and lush gardens and many conveniences. I've even read in Ur of the Chaldees, they had modern indoor plumbing. So life was good physically in Ur of the Chaldees. From a humanistic view, you would want to live in Ur of the Chaldees. It was wealthy, it was luxurious, a good future for your kids, education, all of these things that we desire. But God calls Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place that God will show him. So Abraham enters into a relationship with God that's one that's based on faith. Where he's, I'm gonna believe the promises of God, I'm gonna venture out where God is telling me to go, Imagine trying to come home and explain this to your family that God has spoken to you and you're going to move to a place that he shows you. Maybe they give you the benefit of the doubt and they say, well, where is that? Where did God show you? But God said, I want you to go. And as you go, I'm going to show you the land that I'm going to give to you. Literally the knowing was in the going for, for Abram. That would be difficult for his wife to swallow, to say, okay, well, let's go, let's pack up all of our stuff, and we'll just keep going until the Lord shows us that this is it. You load up your family in the U-Haul, and you just drive that U-Haul till the Lord says, okay, this is it. Well, how are we going to know? We're just going to know. God is going to speak to us. And Abram's journey of faith continues when the Lord speaks to him and says that he's going to be the father of many nations. That his descendants are going to be as the stars of the heavens. The only problem is his wife Sarai, who will become Sarah, is barren. They can't have kids, and they keep getting older, and they keep getting older, and they keep getting older. But Abram believed God and didn't even factor his own weakness into the equation. The fact that Sarah was barren, and the fact that he was too old to produce kids. That's a pretty tough time to believe in the promises of God. Let's do the math here. I'm too old, reproduction doesn't work. My wife has been barren throughout our whole entire marriage, but yet God keeps telling us that we're gonna have children. When God visits Abraham and Sarah in their tent, God reiterates this promise to them, and Sarah laughs. You can imagine why, right? She's like, yeah, right, you know? But yet, Abraham believed God. And what's unique about this is in Romans chapter four is then God says that it was accounted to him for righteousness or imputed unto him for righteousness because he believed the promises of God, because it was through faith. Abraham is an example of how a relationship with God exists, it's through faith. Where we believe the promises of God, we're willing to walk by faith and not by sight. We believe the gospel. The gospel's pretty outlandish. That God would send his son to die upon the cross for our sins. That when we trust and believe in Christ through faith, that our sins are forgiven, they're removed from us as far as the east is through the west, through faith. But yet, if we trust God through faith, his promises through faith, then it's imputed to us righteousness, just like Abraham. And Abraham is lifted up off of the pages of Scripture in Hebrews 11 as an example or an encouragement to us that it can be done. It can be done. Believe God, trust his promises. Now, Abraham's not perfect. Two times he lies and says that Sarah is not his wife to save his own skin. I'm kind of giving away my future sermons. We're, we're going to get to all this in more detail. But I want to introduce you to the, the life of Abraham. And then, because they couldn't have kids in this struggle, Sarah has this bright idea of, why don't you have a relationship with Hagar, my handmaiden? And there was no complaint from Abraham. Imagine that. He's like, okay, all right, this this must be the Lord, right? This is this is the Lord's plan for me to go ahead and have a relationship with another woman. And they have a son named Ishmael. And there's all this conflict between Ishmael and the promised child, Isaac. And yet the Lord looks at Abram's life, will become Abraham, and say he's an example of what our relationship with the Lord looks like because he trusted God through faith and walked with the Lord through faith. And we see how this is so countercultural to Ur of the Chaldees. And how he was willing to, to leave comfort And leave this culture and leave this society that was so filled with false worship to embrace that relationship with the one true living God. So verse 29, then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Makel, the daughter of Haran, the father of Mekel, and the father of Ishka. But Sarai was barren and she had no children. And this becomes a theme through the rest of the book of Genesis and the story of Abram is the barrenness that they struggle through. In verse 31, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. So there's the place where Abraham's father passes away in Haran. I want to look at just the first few verses of Genesis 12. And we'll get into this more in our study next week. But this is when God, we have recorded where God speaks to Abram. This is verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the Lord said to Abram, And the Lord said to Abram, what was Abram's faith built upon? It was built upon God's word, God speaking to him. And as we look at this life of faith and what does it mean to be in relationship with God, it's based on his word. And as we live in our own Ur of the Chaldees to hear the voice of the Lord through the written word of God and say, I am with the Lord. I'm trusting who he is. I'm trusting that he's the God of the impossible. I'm believing his offer of the gospel and allowing that to be our life, allowing that to be our uh, direction. More and more as we see our culture going to a Babel type of approach, a humanistic type of approach, rejecting God, being against God, building without God, building for their own glory, maybe more so than in recent history, we're having to choose, aren't we? We have to choose what road we're on. Are we on the road of Babel, or are we on the road of Abraham, this walk of faith, and this walk of trust, and and who the Lord is? For much of our country's history, you could really live in the gray, couldn't you? Because America is a Christian nation. It was more of a, a Christian culture. So there wasn't as much controversy or opposition to the things of God. It was, it was common to call yourself a Christian. Maybe you were out of place if you said that you weren't a Christian or you didn't believe in God. But now if you say you don't believe in God, you fit right in with what everybody else is doing. You fit right in with the confusion of this world. And though it's difficult, and though it's not easy, I mean, when we look at the call of God upon Abraham, it's glorious from our perspective. It's glorious from what we see and our point of view. But as Abraham was going through this journey, it was difficult. He had to leave what was comfortable to go to a land that, that God would show him. There was times that he feared for his own life and his wife's life. There was years where this promise wasn't fulfilled and then finally they had the promised child and God says, go sacrifice the child upon upon the altar. Abraham was promised a land, the promised land that now his descendants have, the children of Israel, but he never experienced the fulfillment of that promise. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that he was looking for a city that had foundations. He wasn't even focused so much on the fulfillment of this promise that his descendants would have land, but he was looking past that to heaven. That's the city that has foundations. Earthly cities come and go. So we're contrasted with Babylon, who really has an earthly priority. We're gonna build a building that no one forgets. We're gonna make sure that people remember us. We're gonna build this up, up to heaven. And then you have Abram that says, I'm looking forward to heaven. I'm pressing towards heaven. I'm, I'm living for heaven. And maybe you examine this question and you go, man, there's, there's more of Babel in me than I would like to admit. I hear you. I agree. that there's too much of this humanism inside of me, this independence inside of me. And may God get us off of that road and onto the road of Abram. And we're encouraged with the words of Christ when we think of roads. When Jesus said to his disciples and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we celebrate Christmas and hope, the the hope that Jesus brings, the title that's given to the infant Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It's God with us with us it's jesus the way it's not jesus a way that he's describing a set of rules and regulations for us where it's do better and try harder and and get on the right road or else it's a walk of faith where we're trusting that christ is the way for salvation and if he's the way for salvation then also he's the way through this life I'm so glad when God depicts what a relationship with him looks like, it's one by faith. If it was one by works, I don't know that Abraham would be the example. What do you think, right? You've got a liar. You also got a guy that's real willing to have a relationship with someone in addition to, to his wife, right? But God says, no, this is the example of faith because he was willing to trust me and he was willing to walk with me. So as a lot of you guys know, this year I've been working on an old 78 uh, Chevy pickup truck, and I just recently got some manuals on how to fix it. And a friend gave me these manuals. He wasn't using them anymore, and they're like original 1978 uh, manuals. And I've been geeking out, like it's already Christmas for me. And I got them about two weeks ago, and these three dusty books are sitting under my bed because they're a little too dirty to sit on my nightstand. So put them under my bed. And I've been finding myself at night reading through these manuals, just dreaming on how to fix different things uh, in, in this, this truck. I've got a, a other stack of books that I should be reading, but they're just not as interesting as these manuals on this truck, right? Yes. But it's difficult when you're just reading through a manual to, to visualize how to be able to, to fix something. At least it is, it is for me. It's much easier to uh, work with someone who knows what they're doing, who's followed this through before, and and you can get guidance from them and do it with them, and and really kind of ride their coattails through uh, this experience. And sometimes I think in the Christian life, we're busy reading the manual, which is good. Hopefully, you're geeking out on the manual, right? But sometimes we forget Emmanuel, God with us. You know, is it rough tonight? Emmanuel, God with us. Are you journeying in faith, but you don't know where you're going, and it's difficult? Emmanuel, God with us. Are you holding on to a promise of God that all things are going to work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose, but you're feeling old in that promise? You're like, man, I've been holding on to this for a long, long time. Welcome to the club of Abraham. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the way. We celebrate him. We draw near to him. We rely upon his strength in our weakness. And please be reminded, no matter how difficult the road of Abraham is, it can't even compare to the confusion of Babel. You maybe remember the confusion of the road of Babel before you surrendered your life to Christ. It seems good from a humanistic perspective, but the reality of it is it only leads to confusion. Where does living for your own glory lead to? Confusion. Where does trying to build a name for yourself? Confusion. Being against God. Confusion. I would take the hardships of the road of Abraham over the road of Babel any day. Any day. So let's stand together and let's pray and we'll celebrate communion. Lord, as we look at the set of genealogies and Shem going forward and Ham and Japheth dropping off the scene, this impressive building project with Babel, and then here on this side, this one individual that you're raising up, Abram, and how he heard your voice and believed you and believed your promises, not even considering his own weakness in in the equation. And God, would you refresh us tonight even as we take communion and we're reminded of your covenant with us. May you stir within us that faith and may we choose to trust you with all of our heart to lean not on our own understandings, to surrender our ways to you and know that you'll direct our paths. God, I pray that you would encourage those that are on the road of Abraham, they're on this journey of faith, but they feel discouraged, they feel worn out. I'm sure Abraham felt that way. And as we look at the cross, that we would be encouraged, that we would be blessed and we would be moved. So Lord, we invite you into this time of communion. And we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. As we enter into communion tonight, I want to read to you out of Hebrews chapter 12. When we look at the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility for sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. This race is one of endurance. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon and we look to Jesus, and specifically we consider his suffering so that we don't get discouraged and weary in our souls. So as we come to communion tonight, let's look to Christ. Let's meditate upon Christ. Let's think of his suffering and how he can relate to the suffering that we're going through as well. And I pray that God would encourage you, that he would lift those those weights. Maybe there's weight that's on your shoulders and the weight is not sin. It's things outside of sin that weigh us down that God can lift that off of our shoulders but also the sin that plagues us that Christ would lift that off as well through his sacrifice. That God supernaturally would meet us tonight in communion and we would lay those burdens down. The cross communicates that he can handle the burdens. The burdens of our sin, the burdens of our Situation and say, Lord, I'm choosing to then continue to run with endurance, with my eyes fixed upon you. So Jesus, we do that this evening. We wanna look afresh to the cross to meditate upon your broken body and your shed blood. And would you meet us in a fresh way as we celebrate communion together? In Jesus' name.